0: Hello, I'm Tim McLaughlin, and this is a Mewa Podcast. In this episode, we present excerpts from Kismet, Azrak, and the Fish of Knowledge, collaborating with craftspeople in India. A lecture presented by Ilanid Edwards on October 17th as part of the Mewa Textile Symposium. Ilanid tells the story of the events leading up to her first trip to India, and how her life was changed by meeting with the block printers of Damadka. The lecture is introduced by Marcy Powell.
1: Well, this evening, I I take great pleasure in introducing our speaker, Ilidin Edwards, who comes to us from London, where she is currently has an appointment as Research Fellow at the Victoria and Albert Museum and the London College of Fashion, which is part of the London University of the Arts. This evening, she brings the knowledge and understanding that have grown out of her very productive career, which began in her own studio but soon took her to India, where for several years she lived, worked, and studied among the embroiderers, the printers, and the dyers of the Kutch region of Gujarat. Along the way, she earned a doctorate in social anthropology and published several articles based on her fieldwork. What interests Ilanid is not only how textiles are produced and made, but more importantly, why and under what circumstances. For instance, in her published work, she's addressed such issues as the impact of Western ideas about production and trade, and how these ideas affect the century-old ways of doing things. The growth of tourism and foreign markets, where traditional textiles find new uses in the West. The rise of cheaper synthetic textiles. In the broadest sense, her interest lies in knowing how the production and use of textiles becomes entwined with the politics of everyday life. I touched base with Ilanid yesterday, and I asked her how she would describe herself. She thought for a minute and then said, I'm a designer who strayed into anthropology. Then almost apologetically, she said she didn't think she really fit into any one category. I thought about that, and frankly, I can't think of a more productive way to approach this symposium, which tries to tease out the various strains which encompass tradition and revival. Eleanor, we are delighted to have you with us to present your point of view, and the audience joins me in welcoming you to our stage.
2: Okay, thank you very much, Marcy. That was a fantastic introduction, and now I've got to live up to it. Okay. All right. Um, I just wanted to sort of start off by talking about what happened when Charlotte approached me um, now about a year ago to to come to this symposium. Uh, We met at the um, UNESCO Conference on Natural Dyes at Hyderabad, um, and she asked me if I'd talk about the research I'd been doing with craftspeople nomads and others in India at at this symposium Um, and you know I I was very keen and I said yes I'll certainly do that as the conversation developed initially in person and then by email uh, it became apparent what what she wanted from me was not what I'd grown accustomed to delivering um, at other mostly academic conferences The difference was that she expected me to be there in the narrative um, and really wanted to get to the root of of what had led me to do the research that I do and and how I interact with people in the field. Um, Although practice is constantly evolving, um, and by that I mean academic practice, which is, I suppose, the category I sit in, one of the conventions of academic writing, which is what I do most of the time, uh, is for the researcher to absent herself or himself from the text. so the use of the first person is limited, and any statement you make has to be substantiated by reference to you know the established literature, mostly written by my colleague at the v and Rosemary krill, who's here next week. <laughs> For the past 16 years, I've been working with makers in India. Some are professional craftspeople. Others originally made goods for private use, but due to circumstances such as drought, earthquake, or a lack of economic opportunity, have turned their hands uh, to making goods for sale. Um, Just to return to my former incarnation um, as a designer... In 1991, I was commissioned by the Church of England to produce ecclesiastical textiles uh, for a church in London. The proceeds from this project um, were sufficient to sustain me for six months in my studio. Um, I I wouldn't have to take another commission or do any teaching um, and, and would just allow me to focus on developing... New work, um, you know, and you've always got sort of too many ideas to develop at any one time. Or the other option was they would fund a trip to India and Southeast Asia, um, which at that point was not not a part of the world I'd visited. And both options were equally appealing. I, I really couldn't decide which I preferred. I don't know if this is a good recommendation for an academic, but I've been reading Luke Reinhardt's um, Man earlier in the year, and I was really taken by the idea of using chance, you know, rolling dice or flicking a coin to make decisions so that you, you in, uh, if you're familiar with the book, identify a number. So it's not totally down to chance, but you identify a number of options and give them a score on the dice. Under the influence of literature... Um, <laughs> I emphasized literature. I, t- I tossed a coin to make the decision uh, because it did come to a crunch. I'd been asked to do another project by a, a gallery, and I thought, mm, you know, I've got to let them know by July or whenever. Um, so, anyway, flicking coin, Kismet determined that I would go to India. And that's the start of uh, all this backwards and forwards to India, all this research work. I would like to add that I travelled with the blessing of Fred the Vicar at St. Anne's and the prayers of the congregation behind me. So I travelled with God. Anyway, my first few weeks in India were suitably dramatic um, I crossed the border, I flew to Nepal to begin with um, and I crossed the border from Nepal sitting on the top of a bus um, and reached because I'd been sold a seat and then it was full so I was oh, right on the roof um, and I reached the holy city of Varanasi at four in the morning in the middle of a curfew Riven by communal violence, which unfortunately is an aspect of Varanasi and a couple of other cities in India, the, the city had just been completely shut down by the military and the police, and you just couldn't move. Um, so I thought, well, there's you know, I can come back later when things have quietened down, I'm, I'm just going to keep moving. So I got on the next train and swiftly passed through delhi and went on to pushkar because some people i'd met on the bus coming down from um, nepal they they told me about the pushkar camel fair and it was 3 days off i think so i arrived in time uh, i arrived in pushkar in time for um the camel fair which takes place at kartik Punema, which is approximately i think it's october november it's on the lunar Um, cycle so it's um, it it shifts um, each year Um, and the town fills up with pilgrims sadhus and famously camels the, the Camel Fair fulfilled all of my Orientalist dreams. It was lurid, it was exotic, and it was a really compelling and intense introduction to India, especially Western India. And, you know, I thought, how can anything top this? You know, I've, I've just looked out right at the beginning of the, the trip. But it, it was topped, Um And and much more, uh, because from Pushkar, I went to Gujarat and arrived in Buj, the capital of um, the desert district of Kutch, um, after, oh, God, it was an awful overnight journey on a video bus. Um, now they have these fantastic sleeper buses, so you can just crash out on a, a sort of sleeping shelf and be oblivious to the, the horrors of driving. But this was in the old days when it was sit up and beg. And I'm slightly under six feet, so I had to sort of origami my legs into the seat space. Um, so, it, you know, it was just a, um, a terrible... Journey. Um, but then, of course, I arrived in Kutch. So, so Boug, um in 91, when I reached it, was uh, a small, dusty town which, at that time, was only just starting to escape the confines of its medieval walls. Um, at its heart um, was and, and is the bazaar. And it was here that I first saw examples of local handicrafts, um, heavy silver ornaments. Uh, and fine gold filigree, lacquered chapati rollers and bobbins for thread, carved wooden boxes, stools and spatulas, um, voluptuous clay pots for storing drinking water, which I was later assured keeps it sweeter than stainless steel pots, which are also common there, and significantly the block-printed cottons and embroideries that were to be the focus of my subsequent research um, on my first day in town i witnessed a clutch of black clad women crowding into one of the cloth merchants booths and the floor there was just strewn with um bolts of cloth and they were they were haggling with a vengeance um but all i could see was um draped silhouettes um just black outlines uh, of black black wool in, in a shop but this was what i was seeing and um it, you know it's it's um it's still, you know, each time I see it, it's, it's memorable. I, I never quite escaped that orientalist feeling uh, in in Kutch. As as I went by, the women um, turned to stare at me, and as they turned, their, their veil cloths opened to reveal blouses jewelled with embroidery and mirrors, and their throats were marked with indigo tattoos. Um, they were wearing torques, beads, amulets, and it was, you know, it's absolutely mesmerising. I'm British, and, you know, we're taught as children uh, not to stare, it's rude. Um, so I kind of moved on. Um, but I did find out that the women were Abaris and that they were a community of nomadic camel breeders. And, you know, I've just worked a lot with them since then. Um, so during that that first visit to Kutch um, I spent a lot of time traveling to villages all over the district um, occasionally with some slender introduction to a craftsman but often just on spec because I'd heard you know a a craft was practiced in that area and I thought "I'll, I'll just chance it and the seeds were sown during this period of of what's now developed into my profession I visited bunny, the, the grassland in the north of uh, Kerch, to the north of Buj, um, where there are a lot of um, hamlets, not villages, they're too small to be described as villages, um, very scattered, very isolated, um, and these are populated um, largely by Muslims and Dalits, uh, and they're cattle herders. And that's why I say the significance of Asia's largest grassland, um, it supports um, a good deal of pastoral activity and that's been the mainstay of the local economy. Um, So trekking around these um, villages, I was shown the most amazing heaps of dowry embroidery um, by women whose daily dress was, you know, it's like a masterclass in surface decoration. Um, And that was, you know, they were looking after children and dealing with cattle and, you know, that was their daily wear. It was all a bit much, you know, when I I looked, I had a quick look back at my diaries from that time, um, this summer when I was starting to put together this presentation and, you know, it was like I was on speed or something and I was taking nothing, you know, I was just, I was high on textiles (laughs) and I think a lot of chai as well, that was in there too, Yeah. Uh, by by chance, um, I met um, a man called Vankakana Rabari. I met him in Buj. Um, he was taking tea with somebody I'd been introduced with. Um, and he invited me to visit Bujodi, which is, I think it's about eight kilometres outside of Buj. It's a Rabari village. It's a village shared by Rabaris and weavers. Um, and it was his ancestral village. They introduced me to the aesthetics of... Ribari embroidery, and they've continued to mentor me in that respect. Um, they've they helped me with some collecting for the v earlier this year. So, um, you know, they they're long-standing teachers for me. Um, so this is Ali Muhammad Isha from Buj, who's a, a master of bandhani or tie dye, um, and Kutch has long been renowned for the quality of its tie dye. Um, and he he I, I studied with him for a week, just learnt the basics um, of tying, and we did a little dyeing together, um, and you know it was quite laughable because I thought I was tying you know extremely tight by the second day, and he 'd just sort of go like that, and all these ties would jump out, and that was kind of the acid test so um, I got um, very absorbed um, tying a small piece of silk for a week. I think my most memorable encounter from that whole period in the village of Damadka uh, in the east of d- the district. Um, I reached the village at dusk. I'd been village hopping all day um, in a rickshaw, um, and I'd been given the name of Khatri Mahmud Sadiq by somebody in Buj. I reached the edges of the village, and there were, you know, there were quite a lot of people around, and I just said his name to the first person that I came to, because I didn't know any Gujarati or Hindi. Um, and then I was swiftly taken to a small house in the village and introduced to <coughs> Mamadbai. And in English, he inquired um, where I came from, um, would I like some tea, and did I want to stay for dinner? Um, And he was, you know, his hospitality, uh, which was very quiet, very unassuming, um, just wanted to look after me, make me comfortable. It was absolutely captivating. Um, He then took me to his workshop, which adjoined the house. I'd was introduced to block printing. Um, Deep-bearded men in Nehru caps were working lengths of cotton with amazing speed and very precise registration. It was absolutely... You know, I'd, I'd done screen printing at university, and you have the the sort of guides on the track at the side of the print tables, and the screen goes down. So this was all done by eye and amazingly quickly. One, I was talking to Noor Jahan, uh yesterday about the noise that you get in a printing workshop, um, and the, the printing blocks produce this very steady, very gentle timpani, which Noor Jahan said is like a heartbeat. Um, and you know, it's a great, it's a great description of it. But in in the workshop at Damadka, um, it was overlaid by a chorus of very quarrelsome sparrows um so you 've got this you know it 's just left me with this indelible um oral memory of of this first you know this first encounter um and it was it was in this most harmonious of settings that Mamadbai Bai introduced me to Azharak, uh which I think's one of the most beautiful cloths i 've ever seen. I still think that, and I just want to introduce the third brother from. Damaka. you've got Razak and Ishmael here today, number one and number two, brother. This is number three, brother. This is Jabba. Um, so in- introduce you to the rest of the family. In in the years since that first visit in 91, um, various grants um enabled me to return to India and Bhuj became my home base for several years in the nineteen nineties. Um and I I did very focused research on the textiles and dress of the district's herders and farmers and worked with the Rabari community, um, whose material culture later became the focus of my PhD. This was a a Rabari Dang, that's a migrating group that I joined um, in East Kutch. I was with them for about three days from 1991 onwards, um, I was going back to Demarka because the cutteries produce um, the textiles that are the mainstay of local dress codes. Um, but it wasn't until the turn of the century, um, 2000, that um, Azurac became the particular focus of my work, um, and in late 2000 i was awarded funding by the society for south asian studies to um document the production of ashrak in collaboration with mamad sadiq's family um sadly mamad bai died in i think it was 1998 um but i'd worked with his sons by then so um We'd, we'd collaborated uh, on a number of exhibitions, and between us we devised a program of research that we carried out between December 2000 and January 2001. Um, and although um, I've worked with all three brothers with Razak, Ishmael and Jabbar, um, and they're the ninth generation of the family to produce block prints at Damarca, um, it was Ishmael who emerged as a scholar. Um, and interested in research for its own sake, um, and that was something that I bore in uh, mind for the future. Um, for me, that period of research, um, at the turn of the century, uh, was a very indulgent time. Um, during the day, I was busy recording the um, numerous stages of dyeing and printing required to produce um, a piece of Ajrak. Um and I worked with... Um, Razak's sons, Ishmael's sons. Um, So Abdul Ralph, one of Razak's boys, and Orangzeb, who's named after the Mughal emperor, um, patiently printed for the camera and explained what they were doing. Ishmael discussed the changes to the family business, um, technical adaptations and product innovations prompted by new customers, And also the demands of a globalizing market. I lived in the family home. Um, I took kutchi lessons in the evening with Ishmael's daughter Hafsa. And I ate, breathed and slept Azraq. It it was just such a memorably um, happy period of research. And it was, sorry I'm going to choke up. It was just made absolutely unforgettable by the earthquake um, that struck Gujarat on the 26th of January Um, the epicentre was only 20 kilometres from Damarka and the village was was raised 10% of the population lost their lives including Hafsa and Ishmael's mother Fatma Um, as luck would have it kismet according to Ishmael I'd left the village a day earlier because the British council had asked me to give a lecture um, in Bombay um, and I was on my way home. Um, so I, I missed it. You know, I missed it by 24 hours. Um, and as the news broke on the 26th, uh, I was trying to get through to Kutch uh, on the phone, abs- you know, to no avail at all. But I managed to get through to friends in, in Ahmedabad. Um and there was just no clear information. I didn't know what to do. I was supposed to fly back because I was teaching on the Monday. I think this was the Friday, Saturday, and I was teaching on the Monday. I simply didn't know what to do. Um, lines of communication had been severed, and um, you know, confusion reigned. And it was not until two days later, by which time I had gone back to the UK that amazingly Ishmael um, contacted me on a phone that he'd borrowed from a, a news reporter from Doordarshan, which is the equivalent of the BBC in India. And he gave me very detailed, very clear um, description of what, what had happened, you know, as far as he knew um so over the next few weeks he and rabari friends uh managed to phone me and kept me up to date on what was happening and i got on with fundraising in the uk and i also went to america anyway i returned to kutch in um i think it was late june early july of 2001 and you know the devastation literally took my breath away i I, you know i couldn't I, i couldn't uh absorb it um and by then a lot of the debris had had been cleared but the the savagery the savagery of that initial quake you know had scarred the landscape forever it's still there you know you see these gaping holes left in the built environment and just you know entire villages had simply crumpled and crumbled and you know gone forever um and i, I you know i went round the villi- rabari villages that um, I'd worked with, and, and you know, people's village, vivid recollections of that 45 seconds, you know, that had taken their homes, their relatives, their friends, and more, perhaps more significantly, their sense of security, and you know, that's that's permanently with me. Um, and I, I want to mention my um, was intervention here, um, and Charlotte acted very swiftly um, and with great composure and was very sensitive to local circumstances. And she guaranteed livelihoods for the future um, when few could think about it because the needs of the present were so urgent. So I think you know she gave a lot of people hope. Um, in terms of the cutries at Damadka, her help meant that only four months after the complete destruction their homes and workshops they were back in business Um, admittedly it was on a reduced scale um, but with her support and their own profound faith uh, you know religious faith played a lot in this Um, you know it was they were key factors in the recovery of the community Um, I don't want to dwell on this too much (laughs) because obviously it chokes me up but I know that you know it's painful for Ishmael and Rasak so you know I, I don't think it's something you know that i could ignore because it's it has been quite a a feature of my research anyway in an academic context um much of what i do is covered by the term um par- participant observation uh when i try and describe this to friends and family back home none of whom work in anything like this sort of field you know it's prompted responses like oh so you sit around a lot of the time and drink tea it's not an inaccurate description of what's involved because you certainly you certainly do drink a lot of chai Um, but but it makes it sound a rather casual pursuit um, and it it really doesn't reveal the range of activities involved in field research um, and the full-onness of it you know how sometimes you realise you're trying too hard um, to understand what's going on in, you know, in an alien environment. Uh, And just to sort of illustrate that, Rami and Vanka, who I stayed with for many months in their village when I was doing my research for PhD, well, I basically got in the way in the kitchen. You know, Rami's very efficient, but anyway, I thought I was helping. She had this, uh, I was looking at it, it was a black basalt dish with what i thought was a shiva lingam in it and the top of the shiva lingam was i thought anointed with red kumkum which is used in religious worship so you know i i said to Rami, oh you know it's you know it's your shrine it's a shiva lingam and she just looked at me gone out and she said no it's it's my mortar and pestle for making chutney <laughs> so, <laughs> so you know you can try too hard to understand. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, right. I'm getting to the to the fish of knowledge bit now. You know, the quest for knowledge is at the heart of this. And um, to go back to my friend Ishmael here, it's it's a a subject on which he is particularly philosophical. Um, so we were working together in the village uh, one day, looking at a piece of ashraq, and and I I you know I just said I wonder how. You know, I wonder how Azraq was invented. The, the process is so complex. How did somebody put all that together in the first instance? And Ishmael got an answer just like that. And he said, Hikmat. Um, so I said, what's Hikmat? And it's knowledge given by God, Allah. Ishmael is never content to use one word when there's an opportunity for a long and winding story. <laughs> if you spend any time with him, you'll find this out. So he went on to elucidate and told me the tale of Luckman. Um, so this is a much abbreviated version of what he told me. So this is only going to take half an hour. Um, <laughs> A king seeking hikmat was told to eat two special fish, after which Allah would bless him with the knowledge he sought. He sent uh, his cook to the market to buy the fish, and the cook then prepared them for his next meal. Unfortunately, the cook was distracted from his work, and the fish burnt. So knowing the king would be angry um, if he served charred fish... The cook, the cook put the burnt fish aside and quickly fetched some more from the market, cooked them, and presented the dish to the king. The king solemnly ate the fish and waited for Hikmet to descend upon him. Nothing happened. He summoned the cook, who, quaking, revealed what he'd done. Meanwhile, back in the kitchen, Luckman, one of the king's servants, came in from his duties and noticed the discarded fish. Um, He was a poor man, and the fish were too good to waste, so he retrieved them and gulped them down. That night, as he slept, divine knowledge came to him, and he knew everything. (laughs) He knew the medicinal properties of all the surrounding trees and plants and how to treat every illness, and he put this knowledge to good use, and through it he made his name as a healer, um, Luckman Hakim, or Dr. Luckman And this story happened at the time of Musa, who the Jews know as Moses. And I think, in many respects, um, academic research is rather like the quest for Hikmat, and we all wish we could taste that fish. (laughs) So I'm finishing there.
0: Been listening to Kismet, Azrak, and the Fish of Knowledge, collaborating with craftspeople in India. A lecture presented by Ilanid Edwards on October 17th as part of the Maywa Textile Symposium. The lecture was introduced by Marcy Powell. This podcast was first posted in March of 2008. For more information on Maywa podcasts, visit our website at www.maywa.com. I'm Tim McLaughlin. Thank
1: you for listening.